The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, where we're doing the James Well Retrospective Series. And as I'm going to be joined by Rod Burnett in just a minute to talk about Showboat. One thing I want to also talk about is Joshua Kennedy's upcoming movie, Saturnalia. Um, he's on his Indiegogo campaign, and I'm going to let the promo play for it in just a second. And I hope everybody takes the time to support it so he can make sure that his dreams come true for future productions and stuff like that. And support it at every level you feel comfortable with. Otherwise, let's hear the promo and then we'll go in the showboat. It's the same old story. Boy meets girl. Boy loses girl. Boy brings to life cartoon cave girl from outer space. Her name is Saturnalia. She's a, a, a cave girl from outer space. She has laser eyes, and she talks in speech bubbles, and she fights crime. Just listen to me, I am telling the truth. Saturnalia! Saturnalia, the new Joshua Kennedy film. Check out the Indiegogo for the official Blu-ray edition. Click the link in this episode's show notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And this episode, we're continuing our James Whale retrospective. I know we've had a lot of episodes come out on that now, but this time we're starting to wind down on it. And we're going to be going on a good note here with Showboat. And I'm joined with none other than Rod Burnett, the host or co-host of The Bloody Pit, besides so many other podcasts I can't remember because he's doing like a little bit of everything. How are you doing today, Rod? I am doing pretty well. Thank you very much. And for listeners wondering, if you don't listen to The Bloody Pit, the reason I asked Rod if he can join us, the movies, when he talks about them and with his co-host, they go, he goes into such detailed opinions. You might not always agree with everybody's opinion, which is always good, but his opinions are so well-researched and the nuances he'll pick up with film, cinematography, sound, and so on. To me, I find very well very informative and very well done no oh, well thank you thank you very much I, I i'm always uh i'm always happy when people uh kind of kind of focus on that aspect of the show because i've always felt that the reason for doing the shows that we do um i've been doing this for more than 12 years now we started with a with a podcast about uh, spanish horror filmmaker paul nashi a show called the Nashi cast. And the whole idea uh, behind doing that show was that there wasn't a show like that out there. So I guess we were going to have to make it. And what we wanted was a show that uh, dug into the background. of these. Not, not, what, how do these films work? Why do they work on us? Why, you know, so that it was a natural curiosity about the movies themselves. And that just leads you to researching them, finding out as much as you can about them. And that's what I always try to bring to, uh, the subject when we're talking about a specific movie or 
whatever whatever subject we end up on. We've we've done all kinds of different things on the two podcasts, but it becomes a thing where I don't want to be a show where the entire point of the show is uh, I like or dislike this movie and here's why I like or dislike this movie. That's part of it. That's always going to be part of it because you're talking about a movie. But at the same time, uh, what I'm more interested in is if you are also interested in the movie we're talking about, I want you to come away from the show having learned something, having gleaned some information that perhaps you would not have otherwise. Because otherwise, it gets really dry. And for me, the more you learn about something that you enjoy as a piece of entertainment, the more fascinating it becomes. You find out about the, the, the trials and tribulations, for lack of a better term, of the people who put the thing together, why it is the way it is, how it might have been different. Uh, all of the pieces that were originally going to be there and no longer are, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, if you're listening to a show about a, if you're listening to a podcast about a movie, I'm assuming you're interested in learning something about it. And so let's see if we can't do the research for you, present the information in a way that uh, doesn't bore you to death. And so, yeah, everybody's got an opinion, but not everybody has access to the information that would make the movie or the television show. Sometimes we talk about TV, make it more interesting. So that's the, that's the whole point of the way we do these shows. Ian. And so when I drag different co-hosts along, uh, I try to make sure that uh, the co-host is present, you know, they're, they're bringing subjects to the table. So they're already interested in the subject. And that is, uh, that, that, that keeps things lively. I love it. Oh, I know. And you, you've had a wide variety of um, guest hosts. You've had Mark Maddox, you've had um, Derek M. Cook, and you have your regulars. Um, and I just enjoy it because especially when you get the regular voices that you have there, you start to know what they like and don't like as yourself. And then, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, where, where, as if anything of our podcast, when we do movie reviews with Ben and Michaela, I think people start to get an idea of what each one of us tends to gravitate towards. And I think listeners will start to be like, Oh, I, I appreciate more what Ben says or Michaela says, or what I'm saying, just like in yours, you know, people know what your voice is and then they get these other voices there these other opinions and they can start to realize which one speaks more to them. And when they're, when they're watching movies. Completely agree. Completely agree. And for listeners to give you a little bit of idea, what the bloody pit is like, we're going to play the little promo for Ron's Rod's show right now. Sorry about that. (laughs) Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of the bloody pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, 
and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. And I will say, when you brought up about the William Castle Westerns, because that was the one Derek was guest hosting with you on, after the second episode of movies that you talked about, I ended up purchasing that DVD set. Um, I, I think I got it for $10. It was on, a, it was on like an Amazon sale at the time, and uh, I've enjoyed it. I haven't watched them all yet, but I've, I've enjoyed the few I've seen so far, and I knew I would from when you two guys were talking about it. Well, I, I knew that uh, before that shit came out, I, I had become kind of fascinated by the stuff that William Castle had done before he uh, became his own, you know, before he struck out and started making independent films on his own and became the guy that we all know and love with, you know, House on Haunted Hill and Cobra and all that kind of stuff. But the um, the stuff that I knew, I, I knew he had learned his uh, directing craft at Columbia because I'd seen his name pop up on a number of uh, uh, programmer mystery films that he made it at, for Columbia in the 40s. And it becomes that idea of like, oh, well, good. Here's a big, here's like eight of his movies that he made at Columbia. This is a chance to just kind of see what kind of stuff he was uh, being told to make that uh, you, can, you can kind of see how he kind of built his, uh, his style up over time and how he, how he figured out how to do what he wanted to do. It's, it, 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 was, it, was, it was fun. Derek and I uh, took those films two at a time. That was, that was a lot of fun. Actually. And also I've been enjoying your, besides everything else, I think the second most thing I enjoyed so far is the 1940s run, which, which you'll probably finish sometime in 2040. Which would be kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah, that's become, that's become the joke. Yeah, that's, it's, it is taking a, a good long while. Uh, Troy Gwynn and I, my longtime podcasting partner, and I started this project, and I don't think we, I don't think we really thought it through because he and I have done a number of series like that for the podcast. We did. Uh, he's a he's a massive Godzilla fan, so we did uh, kind of a a series of, of what we call controversial kaiju films, which is where we talked about the lesser loved Godzilla movies and and things of that nature for a long period of time. And we did that. We did that. He, he selected the movies and went through those over the course of a while. And then we did, a and then oh, man, we did another series. It, it, I'm, I'm losing track, but when I put forth the idea of doing the 1940s universal horror films, we, uh, we realized, okay, we have this great, you know, the great guidebook of the universal horrors book by uh, Weaver and the, the Brunus brothers as a, as a way to kind of lay out the, the, the path, we would take through these movies and it, and it's been great. Uh, and, and, but, we're, but we're entering this, this area where, uh, we're, we're getting, I won't say bogged down, but it's almost kind of a strange offshoot where suddenly we're, uh, we're going through this and we're hitting the Sherlock Holmes films they produced in the forties. And some of those movies fit the, the universal horror template beautifully. Some of them are horror movies, but, uh, the first few are actually much more in the line of, uh, World War II propaganda films. And uh, not that they're not still great movies, but at the same time, we had to kind of come to terms with like, okay, what these first few we cover is going to take us kind of off the horror mainstream track before we get back onto it with things like, you know, Starlight Claw and House of Fear. But it, it has been fun and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a joy because, of course, you know, who doesn't love a good Sherlock Holmes story? And it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. It's, I would say that, um, we kind of 
thought about that beforehand, but we didn't. We were staring it in the face and was like, I guess we're going to do these Sherlock Holmes films. Are we going to do them all? Yeah, let's just stick to the book. That's all you can do right now is, is, is follow through with that. Then you can always go back and catch up, you know, in, from 2040 to 2050. <laughs> well, the, the joy of, of kind of sticking to it, sticking to a path uh, like this is that it does allow you to, especially those forties films, it allows you to get a sense of what was going on at the studio and how, how, um, how the productions were kind of dovetailing from one another and how one slightly influenced another in certain ways. And it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun for a, for a movie geek or for a lunatic who's already interested in these movies in the first place. It's a great plus. It's kind of pushing us into the position of tracking down some of the more obscure films from that period as well. And, uh, that, that's, that's been a lot of fun. We, we've gotten lucky in that a couple of the, uh, uh, well, for instance, they just announced, uh, the, uh, Spider-Woman Strikes Back is coming out on Blu-ray, and that's been one of the most difficult of those universal horrors from the 40s to ever get a good look at. And and uh, the uh, fact that it's going to finally come out on Blu-ray uh, here before the end of the year, I think, is it's, it's, I, or maybe in uh, maybe not. It may be early 2022. I can't remember exactly, but it's just maybe if we keep doing this series long enough, all the movies will come out on. <laughs> <laughs> we won't have to seek out really dubious source material to try to figure out what these movies look like. So, it's also it's nice when you get to see um, a clear, crisp copy of something, so you can give it a, a more accurate review. And if you're looking at something that looks like it was um, somebody re, uh, uh, refilmed it with a mud lens, and you're looking at it like, okay, oh yeah, they're actors there. What do they <laughs> There's look? There's something like? happening. <laughs> Did he? Did he hit that guy? No, he just handed him a drink. That's okay. Hold on. And that's one thing I think you and I are both happy with showboat is we are able to watch a crystal clear Blu-ray version from criterion that came out. Well, I think last year. Um, it's pretty recent. It's a pretty recent release. Yeah. I was, uh, yeah, I don't get to cover a lot of movies that are released on Criterion. It's just, it's just not the field <laughs> that I delve into. So, yeah, I'm always glad when something like that rears its head. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, okay good. And I, I bet you probably did it, got it the same way I did when Criterion or Barnes & Noble were doing their 50% off sale, you know, because it rotates. One time it's Barnes & Noble, I think the other time it's Criterion during the year. And, and if yeah. you know ones you want, it's like 50% off. Get it. If you're going to do it and, um, I, I'm happy with this purchase and, um, just to give listeners an idea, we're going to, I'm going to play a trailer for showboat and that way you get an idea what we're going to be talking about. That's showboat. showboat, the show of show based on the immortal novel by Edna Perth, glorious new songs and music, as well as the old favorites by Oscar Hammerstein second and Jerome Perth. Cast of a century in the hit show of 1936. I'll give you a chance, gal. A thousand dollars and quick. Or you don't walk down the aisle to the wedding match. But I haven't got it. Where's the money you've been serving all these years? Let the gal alone. <laughs> Lovely Irene Dunn as Magnolia. The singing sensation Alan Jones as Revenal. Here, make believe. And just wait till you hear Paul Robeson. Oh, 
He sings Old Man River. River at Old Man River. He must know something, but don't say nothing. He just keeps rolling. He keeps on rolling along. Here, Helen Morgan singing to her man, Bill. Who's not the type at all? You meet him on the Never notice him. His form and face, his manly grace, are not the kind that you would find in a statue. What a show! What a show! Charles Winninger himself as Captain Anley. Nothing like it. More feeling. More like you meant it. You love her. Gosh, a mighty man, you love her. Go on and tell her. Oh, I understand. Miss Lucy, will you be mine? Shovel gladdens the eye, tickles the ear, warms the heart. about joining us on this retrospective i said rod what movie of james will do you want to do and at the time frankenstein bride of frankenstein invisible man dark girl the old dark house was we're all gone and <laughs> it just it just goes to show you know if the, those one quick i mean that was just like it was like yeah oh well, yeah of course so what led you to pick showboat well one I've always been curious about it. Um, my history with musicals is spotty at least. For most of my life, uh, as a young man I, especially, I was not a particular fan of musicals. There were some musicals that I liked, uh, but in general, it was a genre that I stayed away the most from. And so as I've gotten older, <clears throat> some might say wiser, some might say just older. <laughs> I, I've think realized, I think wiser. <laughs> I've realized that the musical genre is actually pretty wonderful. 
and I keep finding more. For a long time, I was like, okay, well, I like these three or four musicals, but I don't like the rest. But that number of musicals that I like started to grow in number to the point where I realized, okay, this is idiotic. I'm, this isn't a crack in the wall. This is an entire door that I keep walking back and forth through. So I like musicals now along with all, all the other genres that I love. And so the fact that I had not gotten around to showboat yet, either either the, the 36 version that we'll talk about today or the 1951 version, the fact that I've not seen either version uh, was, was something that kind of rankled. It made me realize, okay, that's a that's a gap that's easy enough to fill. And around that time, uh, I knew that I could see Showboat, uh, but uh, I had also read the announcement uh, that uh, Criterion was doing it. And I'm like, well, okay, well, that's that's definitely the, the way in because Criterion will provide a lot of information about it on the disc. And that was exactly the way it was. So the chance to talk about Showboat, it, when it breaks me, uh, I, I've not talked about a musical before. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things where I have an interest but I've not uh, I've not exercised or flexed that muscle I should say uh, in the uh, in the in the podcast world. So this is a good starting off point. Plus, I just love James Whale, and I've got uh, loads of praise for uh, his direction of this film. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say this though: uh, if if uh, if I'd uh, known more about his 1933 film, The Kiss Before the Mirror. I might have begged to do that one, but that's not been out on Blu-ray yet. That's uh, <laughs> or oh wait a minute, no, it is out, but I don't have it. And uh, I'm like, ah man, that one looks interesting. Kiss before the mirror. Oh, that one looks really interesting. But nevertheless, well, you know, uh, we, showboat. We can always continue the retrospective, and we can always even even if it we have to wait a while for it to come out, we can always add that one on, and that one I'll know you want to do. Well, little little hint. This morning I ordered a kiss of the kiss before the mirror. <laughs> On the on Blu-ray, so it should be here for me next week. <laughs> I could tell you're like, I really want to watch that one now. <laughs> oh, I do, I do. It becomes it becomes that thing where you thought, well, here's the thing: Kiss Before the Mirror was made. He made it after the Old Dark House and before the Invisible Man. It's like, oh well, I got I, I got to know what was on his mind. I got to see what was going on there. So yeah, and and that's one of the things. I've really appreciated with this retrospective series, like journeys and, and other movies that he's done that people just don't realize James Whale's done. Cause most people just think of them in the horror genre. I think there's a right. lot of people that are out there now that did not know he did showboat did not know he's done these other films. They just think of them in that one small niche, but he really in a little more than a decade, um, turned out great work. And it's just amazing what he was able to put out there for, for filmmakers to see, for audiences to see. And really, a lot of his work is still being used today by filmmakers and how he did things, how he set up shots, how he went about setting the tension up in a movie. And it's just, it's, yeah. it's, to me, he's undercredited. Well, his use of, of a lot of different techniques, cinematic techniques, let's be specific to bring to life these stories. <clears throat> I was really surprised at when I finally saw Showboat, I was really surprised at how much he brought the expression the German expressionistic ideas and visuals into this production because on the surface, you wouldn't think that that would be a good fit, but his use of it in certain specific spots in the, in the film, they're brilliant because he's using it 
to emphasize the mindset, the interior uh, mental workings of the characters who are singing. And there's, a, of course, the big standout for that is all the stuff that he shot Paul Robeson during uh, Old Man River, where you're seeing these images, and it's like, these are images that are perfectly placed to have been in uh, a horror movie of, of some type. And they're being used to emphasize the lyrics of the song. They're they're absolutely amazing. And it was disheartening, actually, to learn that he had shot some other stuff like that for what was going to be the finale of the film the, that they decided to, to trim at the last minute to kind of keep the ending of the film a little bit shorter and more compact. And it's like, oh, God, I wish that stuff still survived so we could at least see, you know, these German expressionist images um, the ones he would have used, you know, whatever what he would have used to uh, to emphasize the real emotional upheaval and uh, the kind of joy that he's that he's uh, putting forth at the end of this movie. But the uh, the stuff that's there is just amazing. And my goodness, his use of crane shots and and the mobile camera, his ability to show you how uh, how all these things in motion while keeping the camera moving as well. It, it, it makes things so dynamic. It's astonishing. I did not expect, I hate to say it, but I just didn't expect this level of, of camera movement and uh, uh, scenic dynamism that you get from this movie. Uh, there's, to my mind, I hate to admit it, but I was just thinking, okay, it's a, it's a, it's a mid-30s production. There's only so much uh, cinematic movement. There's only so much camera movement. There's only so much uh, of this kind of um, what you think of as kind of uh, uh, camera razzle-dazzle that you're going to be able to expect from this. And then within the first 20 minutes, I'm sitting there with my jaw hanging up and going, oh, my goodness. The fact that he's, wor- he's working so hard to get this kind of stuff in there, that uh, nearly 180-degree uh, pan around Robeson as he's singing is Mind bending. I mean, if you're if you're a savvy uh, film watcher, you can dope out how it's being done. But the first time you see it, you're not even thinking about that. You're just amazed at how brilliantly it's being pulled off and how fluid it is. It's just it, it, to to know that this is. Uh, well, let's let, let, let's just say, after seeing this version of it, I can understand why you would want to do a, a, a new version of it later on in color. But as far as cinematically. This would be the jumping off point for how to do this. It's amazing. And we got to give credit to um, John Meskel, the cinematographer, because he's able to pull off what the director's vision is. And I got to say, I think it was more than 180 degrees. It was probably like 270 degrees. I mean, it was, it was even, it was amazing. It was almost 360. How, I mean, it was like 270 ish. It was so impressive. And, and listeners, you can you can go on YouTube. You can put in Old Man River, Showboat 1936. You will see exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's right there. It's the opening shot, really, of the song, or shortly after the song starts. And you're just, you're just watching it. And as Rod said, with 1936, you're just impressed with it. But... I've been blown away with a movie from 1927, Napoleon, with what um, was able to be done there, and other filmmakers yeah. have done in M and things like that, and, and and so on. So, of course, that was before sound, and then 
you put the sound in, the cameras changed, everything you had needed other equipment. So it was, it was impressive that they were able to start to bring these things back. And then you watch these other films that come after and there, and people say, well, we just couldn't do it. Or we couldn't, do it. yes, you could, because it was done <laughs> earlier, you know? Yeah. It was, it was done in the thirties. It's like, you know, if, if you don't have the time or you don't have the money, okay, we, that I can understand. But as far as the physical ability, the technical know-how, it was there. And, and the creativity is just off the charts. I mean, it's, it, it is not, I've seen a lot of musicals. I've been to a lot of th- musicals and theater. I love theater. As everybody knows, that's listened to the show. Cause we're, we're a theater family. And when I go to a movie, I don't want to see a stage production on a movie. I want to see a movie of, yeah. you want a you want a cinematic experience, not a film stage. Yes, because I because I can see because I can see the, I can go to the theater and see that, and and this one James Whale made this a cinema experience, and he told the performers, you know, we're going to do it my way because they'd all done all these performers. A lot of them were in the nineteen twenty nine silent with some song version. You know, it was it was kind of a mixture, and a lot of them were on yeah. the stage versions and. He said he wasn't doing a stage version. He wasn't sticking strictly to the book. He was going by what the stage was, the performances, the musical was done, but he was taking it and enhancing it to the um, cinema experience that we got to see. And it was just, it was my first time seeing it. I think if I, I remember, it was your first time seeing it just recently. Yeah. And it was just, it's just amazing like you said, with 1936, I, I really can't, I can't give people excuses. If they had big budgets and time from that point on, they, they, when you couldn't pull off certain shots. Oh, I, I completely agree. And the thing about this film is it's as, as amazing a, a cinematic experience as it is. I think we, we should probably back up and just point out that in a lot of ways, this musical, when it was on the stage was, uh, a pretty a pretty massive departure from the way that these that musicals were being done on the stage as well. So it's almost as if the 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 radical nature of the material itself lends itself to that kind of experimentation and that kind of creativity when you bring it to the cinema. Because showboat before before showboat, most musicals done on the stage were 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 uh, they were kind of, uh, they were like musical comedies in general. The idea was to do something humorous. This is a full-blown drama. And don't get me wrong, it has lots of humor within it. But this is a musical drama primarily that's talking about very serious and very, to this day, touchy subjects. And the fact that that element of the story, of, of, or I should say the history of this, uh, this musical, the fact that it starts off being... A, a, a new kind of thing, something that hasn't, that, that just wasn't the norm at the time. The fact that that folds into the history of this on screen as well, where you have James Whale using every trick that he can pull out of a bag to make this thing as cinematic as possible and to not make it a stagey thing, to go film in places where you know, you're actually on, you know, on a, on a, on a, a riverboat that you, you're using, although it's, you know, a lot of it's back projection, you're seeing the real places, you're seeing these real outdoor locations as opposed to something else where you, you have these expansive sets where the people, you can see people walking up and down the dusty streets in the background and stuff like that. 
this is a, a filmmaker realizing that this this is not a static piece of material. This is something that begs to be made with every fiber of creativity you can bring to it. And that's what's really surprising to me. The fact that I had I've only recently come to this movie is is a is a stain on my fandom. I'm telling you now, I should have seen this years ago because this shows you that that incredible creativity that I've always admired from James Whale, uh, the stuff that you would see him doing in things like the Old Dark House and, and Bride of Frankenstein, he wasn't just limited to the horror genre. That create that creativity when given the opportunity to. Uh, to flower, man, Showboat is an incredible example of that. And now, one thing I want to say: when you said you wish you would have saw it sooner, my 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 standard answer is we all see the movie when we're meant to see the movie. Yeah, maybe so, maybe and, so. And I think I think you and I seeing it in 2021, and are able mm-hmm. to make these compare and contrast for a movie that came out 85 years ago, and how it's still Renaissance. I think that has more impact on us now than if you and I would have saw it maybe 20, 30 years ago, because we would have been younger men, maybe not as knowledgeable as we are now with wisdom and things. I think at this stage of our lives, we're able to see this movie and and get more out of it than maybe perhaps when we, if we would have saw it when we were teenagers in our twenties. Maybe we're more appreciative now. You're right. You're right. The other thing I want to mention a lot of things I think you read and I've read, people were surprised that they gave James Whale this movie because of, well, he's the Frankenstein director. He's this, you know, the horror director. And people had forgotten even then in 1936 how this man started his career. I he, know. Journey's, he was a stage director. Journey's End, state directed uh-huh. that, brought it from England to Broadway. Huge hits in both places. Then they had him film Journey's End to make a classic movie. Yep. Why would they expect that he, he obviously translate from the one medium to the other medium so effectively before? Why would you not think he could do it now? Except people had not associated him anymore with journeys. And they were thinking about him with his more popular works at that time. And I think that again, it's just amazing how nowadays I can understand people, you know, 80 plus years later, like us, looking back at it being like, Oh, you know, this and that. But then when you look at it back then, you're, you're, you're talking six years later, seven years later. <laughs> and they, and yeah. They the thing it. is though, uh, Hollywood still, it still is, it still is so today, but even, even back then, the, the, the thing that you have to remember is that what you become known for is the thing. Remember film, film, filmmaking is a business. And the fact that they that you suddenly become someone who can make a certain type of film that makes a whole lot of money, well, that is that that is not something to be sneered at as far as a businessman is concerned. That means that they're going to attempt to continue to they're going to try to find a way to keep you on that train, man. Keep you making that money because you're really good at this. You know how to you know how to get those butts and seats. And so the idea of keeping you in uh, doing the thing that has been a success already, some of that plays into, you know, uh, well, why are you having the guy who, you know, just have one of the biggest hits in the world, a horror film? Why, why are you allowing him to make a musical? It's because he's more than just 
I mean, a horror film. But the thing is that that's the way the industry has always been. Those those huge hits cast a long shadow, and to step out of those shadows sometimes takes a lot of effort or just a lot of confidence in the money men in your abilities. And man, thank goodness, you know, thank goodness that this happened because the uh, the, the the thing is the, the, the who knows if some other filmmaker would have been able to bring the uh, the, the visual sense and the, the ability to hang this thing together as brilliantly as James Whale did. Oh, I agree. And, I, and of course, this is, to me his, was his last masterpiece, you know, of, of films, you know, because after this, Universal um, changed hands and he did not get along with the new regime, which led to yeah, yeah. his career um, ending, you know, years later um, and that kind of stuff. Well, his next, his next film got taken away from him and re-edited and different things being shot to insert into it. His next movie was The Road Back, which was a uh, sequel to uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, and it got butchered. And you'd have to think that how how disgusting did that have to be for the man who, while he'd made a couple of movies in between his huge hits that were not as successful as as the studio had wanted, he he was coming off of, you know, Bride of Frankenstein and Showboat, two gigantic hits in 35 and 36 that made the, that made millions, literally made millions in the 1930s for Universal. And then the people who are in charge are suddenly butchering his film, not taking his creative uh, desires into, into account at all. And you can see how after that, he still made some good films after that, but his, his lack of creative control and possibly the kind of, realization that he need not have any confidence in being able to shepherd a movie from beginning to end all the way to the screen is, is kind of, is kind of a, kind of a terrible thing. He made some good movies after that, you know, man in the iron mask in 39 is good. Uh, I, and, uh, I have some affection for, uh, center's paradise, which I think is a, is a, is a pretty good old movie, but at the same time, you know, wow. To go from the highs of, everything that he'd done, almost everything he'd done on, on screen up through showboat. And then to encounter that thing that so many creative people run into in Hollywood, which is you're forcefully reminded that you have X amount of control and you do not have total, you do, you do not have total control. I agree. And one of the things I want people to remember is it's not just you and I that, as you said, the critics also love showboat and even when AFI did their top hundred lists and all these other lists of movies, they did their top mm-hmm. 25 musicals and showboat was number 24. So it still yeah. shows you that the critical love is there for it. And I, I will, I will say this. Yes. For more modern audiences, so the, the singing and the music back when this was made has changed because musical taste changed. You know, oh, of course. And so there are some songs that you'll be listening to that might for, 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 for a lot of people might be like, Oh, this is, this is, you know, it needs to be different or that, but that from 1936, this was the big thing, you know, but there are some like old man river is just one of those songs that you and I, I think both knew well before we ever saw this movie. It's, it's, it's oh, yeah. legacy and stuff like that is as, as an all time classic that most people, no. Well, the, uh, the, the, that's the thing is that a lot of musicals have 
one of those they, they have a song that kind of breaks out of uh, breaks out of the of the musical itself and becomes uh, either a popular hit or it's uh, recorded by other artists and becomes uh, something that people know from an, from another uh, from another context. And Old Man River is one of those things. It's one of those incredible songs that people know for because Paul Robeson, the man who plays the the role and sings the song in this film, was famous for. Uh, singing uh, uh, at, at, at different events uh, and slightly and subtly changing the lyrics over the years as well as times changed. And it became, Old Man River is just one of those songs that I don't know what percentage of the population is aware of the song, but they, as soon as you hear it, you know it. But you may not even know that it came from a musical group. I mean, who, who, you, know, you may not even be aware of its origin point. But the the you know there are a lot there are a lot of songs that way and Old Man River is kind of the, the it's almost the first cinematic example of a song that is almost universally known but its its background is probably pure pretty obscure and it is a song that Paul, Paul Robeson for for people who don't know Paul Robeson had a degree from Rutgers went there on an academic scholarship got a mm-hmm. law degree. Yep. Traveled the world with his acting career because he fell in love with acting. And it's just it's just amazing what he could do. Um, you know, you talk about he's so talented, so able to do these things. But one of the things I love to give him credit for, because he'd been involved with Showboat pretty much from the beginning as a musical all the way through a lot of these iterations. Yeah. Is the changing of various lyrics, you know, because um, the, 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 there's certain words that were used that were different that you and I cannot say, um, yes. that they got changed where he got changed, where in the movie version that we saw, they say darkies instead of the other mm-hmm. one. And then even later on in life, he also kept changing certain things and it was very big into civil rights and things like that. And it still is amazing how that song in all of its iterations, you could just see how society has changed just with one song with a changing of a word here or a phrasing there, how, how much meaning it can have. Well, I, I love the fact that you can know the song without knowing its origin, but at the same time, once you see the film and how the, how that song fits into the, the, the larger, the larger tapestry of the story being told, first of all, I have to admit, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you, if you felt this way as well, I had no idea what the real subject matter of Showboat was. I had no clue that this was, let's just call it what it is, an examination and a takedown of racist thought in the American South. And and to a large degree, racist thought will stop. The the, The central starting point for the plot is that the star of this, uh, the star of the show of this, uh, this traveling showboat that goes up and down the, goes up and down the river doing, you know, presenting, uh, this comedy musical dramatic review up and down the river. That's how these, these actors and musicians make their money. And let the listeners know the movie's supposed to be taking place in 1880s Mississippi. Oh uh, yeah, we should we should point out the the story sp- spans about forty years from the, the late eighty late eighteen eighties to about uh, the late nineteen twenties, 
and it's a, it's got, it, 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 and that's that sounds like it covers a lot of ground, and it does. But the, what's joyous is the, the the focus is on the characters, and you're just watching these people uh, age and uh, their lives change and alter as time goes on. And the uh, the, the 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 movie is it's almost laser focused on the ideas uh, that drive these people and that animate their creative lives. It's, kind of, it, it's, it's amazing to watch when you realize you have to kind of pull back a little bit and think about it afterwards. But the reason all these things exist in the way that they do within these characters lives is because of the interactions between the white people and the black people. They, none of their lives would be the same or be as good. Their lives would not be as positive if there was not that interaction and that byplay between these people. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty candid look at some of this stuff. And it was, it was a bit of a surprise to me. Like I say, I had no idea that this movie was going, it doesn't just lean into the question of racial ethics. It, it just cuts it wide open, lays it out there and goes, all right, let's take a look at this stuff. And we're going to do it with music. Don't get me wrong, but that's what we're going to be talking about here. And I agree with you exactly. And it's not just the touches on race in ways that most movies back then and even today really don't go over in, in, in the no. detail they did. And you're bringing up that one lead actress at that time, Julie played by Helen Morgan. Yeah. And she had a um, African-American mom and a Caucasian dad, but she looks right. Caucasian. And she's married. And she's to, been passing for. And she's been passing for white this whole time. Exactly. And she and her husband is Caucasian. Well, one guy who, who's a spurned lover, Pete, uh, whatever, decides to go to the sheriff or the judge or whatever. Uh, I think it was the sheriff, and and tell him the story about oh she's really this, and because back then you know um you couldn't marry somebody of the other race. It was against the law in Mississippi. And, um, yeah. And so, let's, 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 let's let that sink in for the audience. I want you to think about that for just a second. In the eight, in the 1880s, all the way up through the late 1980s in the state of Mississippi, interracial marriage was illegal. That's what, what do you say? It's, it's, it's just amazing. And they come to get her and her husband before they get there, cuts Julie's hand and then puts blood in his mouth from her mm -hmm. hand. And that everybody see everybody that's on the stage boat at that scene sees him do it. And that way when they come, it's like, well, if you have one drop of blood in you, then aren't you not of that race? And they go, yes. He goes, I have more than one drop of that blood in me right now. You know, and, uh, so mm -hmm. it was to keep her from being arrested and things like that. It was just, it, it was, it was heartbreaking to watch, to see that go down. And it, it was, yeah. and I think that's things that people forget what was happening all the time, but we just did not realize it being in our different lives. You don't, you don't notice these things. And that, and what I, what I love is the way the story is structured is the reason this comes out. She's been, they, they've been, they've been living this life for years at this point, these two characters. And the reason this comes out is because of a simple, normal human thing, which is this guy who's been, uh, who's been hitting on her and been trying to convince her to have an affair with him. 
chiefs continually rebuffed him, and he, out of out of anger at her for this, exposes her and ruins these people's lives at that point. I, you know, the, the, the movie continues, and it, and it and we learn how how this affects them down the years, and it's that kind of thing where this incredibly human, this nasty side of human nature, is the it, it's it's the start point for these people's downfalls, and it's and it's horrible the use. And that's that's something that I think that it's it's a small thing, but it should be it should be commented upon. It's the use of authority to harm someone, and it's it's that kind of thing that was built into the Southern law system at the time. And one would be hard pressed to pretend that it wasn't still lingering today, where the the right people can use the law in a way to harm people out of pique out of out of the desire to just vent their anger. And it's amazing to me watching this, like I say, that that's what this, that's the story. I had no idea how serious and how smartly written this film would be, but certainly the subject matter surprised the crap out of me. I was, I, I was stunned and impressed. And that happened because this movie is about a little less than two hours long. And that happened in the first, this all happens in the first 30 minutes. I mean, this is, um, yeah. Um, how it goes into it. And the interesting thing I thought we get, we get an idea about this prior to this being exposed through a song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't help loving that man. And it's from that song where you have Queenie played so wonderfully by Haiti McCoy, I met McDaniel and yep. Joe Paul Robeson coming in. Why? Julie is singing this song and they're both remarking how they've never seen a white person sing that type of song. And, and, mm-hmm. and we're going to play this song and it's going to have those interactions with those characters. You can see how they realize something and it gives the audience that clue. And that's what I love about films that allow that don't spoon feed the audience. It's there, right. and, 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 and then you realize it when you get to those scenes later on. Oh, that's what they were all setting up, if you didn't figure it out before. And I love movies that do that, where they used the, the, the platforms that they're doing, the cinema, to show you, and the musical to sing about it and allow these interactions with the characters. And it, it's... Oh, this, this is the performances in this scene, the, the, the on-screen performances in this scene are absolutely brilliant the, the 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 looks that these different actors are giving the ones who aren't aware that what they're saying is is making the it, making another person uncomfortable and the realization that this one that that one person is going to have to just really immediately recover and pretend that this didn't kind of give them a a, a bit of a, a bit of a scare it, it's just brilliant acting it's so well done and we're going to play the song so you get an idea what it sounds like with the dialogue. But I also recommend, again, you can find this exact clip on YouTube and you can see that acting, like Rod said. It's just, you're seeing people at the top of their game. You're, you're getting great yeah. acting. And also, you'll see in, in that one, you won't hear her, well, you hear her briefly in this, Magnolia, Irene Dunn, but you'll see her in that mm-hmm. dancing, um, a, a style that would not normally be a typical to a white person. And, and that's because she's been raised on the showboat with Queenie, with Joe, with all these other people. And, and to her, it's just everybody's everybody. You know, she doesn't really notice race. Yeah. She just thinks of it. We're all yeah. 
humans. And I think that's the, that's the thing we're always striving for to get to that, that stage where she's at, where it's just, just everybody's everybody. So let's listen to a look of the song and give you an idea. Don't say anything to your mother about my meeting you here in the kitchen. Why? Never mind. Now tell me all about this man. Who is he? Well, I don't know. He was standing on the wharf and I was standing on the top deck. And he looks so different from everybody else and so, so beautiful. Julie, he said he liked me. You think he meant it? I don't know. I don't know as I'd like you to go falling in love with some man no one ever heard of. Suppose he turned out to be just a no-account river fella. Well, if I found out he was no-account, I'd stop loving him. Oh, no, you wouldn't. Once a girl like you starts to love a man, she don't stop so easy. Well, couldn't you stop loving Steve if he treated you mean? No, honey. No matter what he did. Why do you love Steve? Oh, I don't know. He's such a bad actor on the stage, and he thinks he's so good. Maybe that's why I love him. You see, Nola, love is such a funny thing. There's no sense to it. That's why you've got to be so careful when it comes creeping up on you. It's like the thing you always sing about when we take our walks. Fish gotta swim, birds gotta fly. I gotta love one man till I die. Can't help loving that man of mine. That's it. Tell me he's lazy, tell me he's slow. Tell me I'm crazy, maybe I know. Can't help loving that man. song. Why, do you know it, Queenie? For sure I does, but I didn't ever hear anybody but colored folks sing that song. Sounds funny for Miss Julie to know it. Julie sings it all the time. Can you sing the whole thing? Of course I can. What's so funny about that? Oh, listen, sister, I love my Mr. Man, and I can't tell you why. There ain't no reason why I should love that man. must be something that the angels done planned. Fish gotta swim, birds gotta fly. I gotta love one man till I die. Can't help loving that man of mine. Tell me he's lazy, tell me he's slow. Tell me I'm crazy, maybe I know. Can't help Loving that man of mine When he goes away That's a rainy day But when he comes back The day is fine The sun will shine He can come home As late as can be Home without him Ain't no home to me favorite song my man is shiftless and good for nothing too he's my man just the same he's never near me when there's work to do he's never around you when there's working to do the chimney's smoking the roof is leaking in but he don't 
seem to care He can be happy with just a sip of gin Why are you all talking about gin? I even loves him when his kisses got gin It's just a great song and how, as you said, with the acting and the way everybody is able to pull that off with the film, it's just, it's just, it's just something you have to see. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful, it's wonderful as spectacle, as cinema. And I just, the, the, the song is amazing. And one of the things I noticed with James Whale's directing is a mm-hmm. lot of this when you have these certain action scenes or these type of scenes where things are going up. And what you hear in the background, when you hear Magnolia, that's her mom realizing that um, she's not where she's supposed to be on the showboat because the mom's all prim and proper. And um, yes, it, it played to comedic relief. And, and, and we'll get, we'll talk about her and her husband. Great. Cause they, they are the comedic relief for the most of the film um, is the close-ups, how each one, of the four that are involved in this scene, get their close-ups reacting to the mom yelling and, and their different expressions. And he does that throughout the film to show that reaction shot. So you get the the group and then you get to see each individual shot. And I find that, I find that yeah. very well done. Well, that's one of the things that uh, it, it's, it's, this is the point at which I remind people of, of cinematic history. Remember, we're just in the first decade of movies having so a lot of the techniques and a lot of the things that are being done in movies in the 1930s, they're still learning on the job in a lot of instances. And in this case, when you see someone whose editing style and directing style uh, is, is, is so perfectly suited to what I would consider to be an almost modern way of shooting shots and, and, and crafting the, your, your, uh, your, uh, your edit, Whale's knowledge of when to bring the camera in for a close-up is ingenious because he knows he's adapting a stage play. He knows he's got to make it cinematic. And he knows that you emphasize someone when they're the only person in the shot. And that sequence is an, it's a perfect example of how he knew when the camera needed to be back, when it needed to be close. And he's it's it's a masterclass in how to present this the maximum amount of information for the most amount of emotional impact and to emphasize the song exactly. It's just brilliantly played. I think he does that. There's so many scenes in this movie 
where you can feel the director with such a sure hand on how to present the material that it's, it's kind of shocking at times. And, and one of the things I like about this song and a li- another song that happens later on, the relationship between Joe and Queenie yes. is you can tell there's the love is there. It's, it, it, it's a couple mm-hmm. that is so comfortable with each other's skin and being with each other. And the, they perform it so well. And you also get the same loving relationship with um, Captain Hawks and his wife. Um, I'm trying to remember how it part was it partly, partly, partly Hawks, you know, um, which is, Magnolia's mom and dad, they also love each other and, and they're different from each other in a lot of ways, but they balance each other out. And there's a lot of loving relationships or couples that are here. Uh And I I find it's just, it's just nice to see, you know, where it's just allowed like, Oh, they're, they're there. There's this is a movie I find where I'm so interested in a weird way. I'm more interested in all these supporting characters, which are so interesting. Yeah. Then, then the main character, which is Magnolia, who seems that everything's happening around her, and a lot of people help her along. And I love her story too. Don't get me wrong, but it's just it's just the, the people around her seem to build this this world that I'm fascinated. Well, they're more with. interesting in some ways because they're we kind of and this is this, part of this is because I mean, come on, man, you and I know this. We've watched a bazillion movies. I mean, it's we 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 know to a large degree that the focus, the, the focus at the center of the story, uh, we're, we're going to be following that. And so these, these secondary characters, these side characters, they're the ones that are allowed to have a lot more flavor and color within the structure of the story. And so they're almost intrinsically more interesting to us because we don't know what their story is going to be. We have a sense, because of the type of movie this is, what you know, whether there's an up and down, a, a tragic, a, a tragic fall, or a, or a, or incredibly beatific rise, we we kind of know that we're going to be sh- we're going to be following Magnolia's story regardless. But those secondary characters, we have no idea, and so they get to paint with a with with a much finer brush, and therefore they're more interesting. And um, that that's not to say that, like you say, Magnolia's story is wonderfully interesting too. That's that's beside the point. The point is, the reason you, you you love those secondary characters so much is not just because they're they're well played, they're well well written. They get some wonderful standout moments with some great songs along the way, but because we can't predict their outcome. Oh, exactly. And like I said, we have two really caring, loving relationships, and then of course we have Julie and Steve's relationship, which starts off mm-hmm. so so caring and loving. Where do you know? he helps her out. But then as we find out later on, um, they end up separated from each other and we don't, we don't we're right. never explained what happens. You know, it's just, they're parted and she becomes an alcoholic and um, she shows up at the end of the movie. Well, near, not the end of the movie, but the last act of the movie where she helps Magnolia in a, in a sense, um, start her career by disappearing. Yeah. It's it's a wonderful selfless scene, and it's one of those it's one of those beautiful moments when you realize that the the older actress who's stepping aside has still got it. She's still capable of working at the top of her game, but she knows she's on the she's on the downside. She's on the back end of her career, 
And she knows that if she wants to help this person that she loves, she can make way right here and, 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 and kind of kick that door open for her and give her the opportunity that she probably had when she was younger too. She can make that happen for someone else. And it's just another one of those beautiful little story moments. It's a beat between characters that the, th- the two characters don't even really share. Uh, it's being done without one character's knowledge. It's, 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 it's amazing. It's, it's, uh, there's so much heart in this story. There's so much emotion that it's, um, oh, it's, 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 it's the, the strengths of this are multitudinous and the, 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 the heartfelt nature of these, of these, uh, character interactions are just, they're, they're, they're incredible. And they kind of come in at left, at left side angles. You don't really know how they're going to present themselves. And maybe it's, maybe it's because you're constantly being distracted by another song. I don't know, but the, the story beats just, they're, they're, they're amazing. And, and some of them are telegraphed. Some of them are easy to see coming, but Man, every now and then, one like that, when she steps aside intentionally, that's that's a that's a that's a heartbreaker. Oh, it is, and her true story, Helen Morgan. She died not that long after this movie. Um, oh, I know the actress of age so, forty-one. Yeah, a terrible story of alcoholism. So it's just it's it's so weird how the character and the actor ended up having a, a kind of a similar fate, you know, in in, in one way with alcoholism. Uh, it's a horrible art imitating life kind of situation. And, uh, yeah. Uh. It is. And, 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 and again, even when in her final years, she was still able to perform at a high level and was still doing shows and, and things like that before she actually collapsed on stage. And uh, yeah. so it's, it's, it's just, it's just really, really weird and, and, and morbid in a way, but it's just, but her performance thankfully is on this this disc and it's going to be living there forever and it is it is a very good performance. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be honest, I can't find a bad performance in this movie. So I, I can't either. And one of the interesting things I want to bring up, Irene Dunn, who's probably the most famous person in in out of this production. You know, like if you look at their history of her movies, I mean, she was in so many things. She was nominated for Oscars multiple times and yep. other work, and. I I thought it was interesting when I was reading up on it. She at first was very worried about James Whale because, again, like we said, he told everybody, we're going to do it my way, you know, that kind of stuff. But she loved the scene where her and Alan Jones, who plays her um, love interest, sing Make Believe, and it's like Romeo and Juliet, the way it is staged on screen when they first meet. Yes. And she just loved that. And I think sometimes actors don't realize until they see the production later on what the director was going for. Because sometimes you're just in the moment and, you, and you're in it, so you can't really see it as the director is seeing it. And then when you see the whole thing, the edited version, you're hopefully you're wow. You're like, wow, they really did that. As we all know, there are some movies where the actors see it and they're like, they did that? But in this case, it was a good way. Mm-hmm. Well, the, that that was a, that was one of the amazing things. The first time I'm watching Showboat in my entire life, I'm watching it with my uh, my dear sweetheart Beth, and we get when that scene comes up when the two of them start talking to each other, one on the showboat and one down on the on the dock. Beth immediately went, "It's Romeo and Juliet," 
And I went, oh yeah, but she, she got to it. She got to it before I did. <clears throat> and anybody who's paying attention uh, to that sequence would realize how whale is smart enough to know to set that in place because it, 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 you know, if, if, if you're going to steal, steal from the best, baby. And stealing from Shakespeare to set to set this scene up is a perfect example of how to present this cinematically and almost imperceptibly, without really necessarily getting uh, you know, the the audience to understand how it's happening to them, affecting them in a way as these two people meet and talk to each other. It's and then sing that song, of course. Oh, I know, and we're not going to play every song on this thing. We, you know, we're going to end. When we, when we get done, the last song we're going to play to take us out will be Old Man River because I can't think of a better song to end the episode with. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it, there, there's so many good songs on here. But, again, I, I want to I make sure, I'm getting, being fair, that there are a lot of people, a lot of you guys that are listening out there, you might find these songs old-fashioned or off-putting. But if you, if, you, if you look at it in the story sense and how these songs tell the story, which is what mm-hmm. great musicals are able to do. Songs that the actors are able to perform and move the story along in that, that, that different type of thing. Instead of dialogue through song, they, they fit like a glove with this movie. And remember, it's, it, I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize it again. This, is, this was a completely new genre. When this was presented on stage, uh, this was not what, what was the standard at the time. Showboat was... It was, it was called, quote-unquote, a completely new genre. The musical play as distinguished from musical comedy. Now the play was the thing. The story was the point. Everything else was subservient to the play. So the songs had to advance the story or they weren't going to be there. That's the reason the songs are there. The song, you know, the, the, the song, you know, you didn't just come to hear the songs. You came to be told the story and the songs were to there, were there to enhance and push it forward. Now, one thing we, we, we talked about, this movie takes place over decades, like 30, 40 mm-hmm. years worth. The makeup, I find <laughs> very well done. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's not like current standards, but I think if you look at 1936, it, it, I mean, nothing really to me sticks out like, oh, that's, that's bad makeup. The only, the only weirdness thing, I, I completely agree with you. I think that some of the subtle, uh, the subtle wrinkling on some of the actors' faces, and the way in which they uh, they 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 like them in a in a different way to give them you know, make it look as if a decade or, a decade or more has passed. The only thing that stood out for me is, is this is this is just a a standard thing for a lot of people is uh, Alan Jones the, the the coloring of his hair as he as he's gotten older. It, it, I swear I, I swear it almost feels like it's going to it, it was it was glowing. <laughs> it's just like no no no. I think I think, I think something went wrong with the, with the dye on his hair. Something's wrong. Hold on. <laughs> Yeah, just, Other than that, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, and and he's that's when he comes back in the film and he's there. But really, he's you don't you don't see him as often. And Alan Jones, no. for people that are Marx Brothers fans, you should be familiar with Alan Jones. <laughs> I didn't expect him to be as good in this as he is. And it may be the Mark. It may be the Marx Brothers connection that made me feel that way. But I was proven wrong. Yeah, he's in the Night at the Opera, and was it a Day at the Races? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, so he's in those two films with the Marx brothers. So it's, it, it's, he's in some movies that people have seen. And, and again, I think some people might look at those older Marx brothers movies where they go into that song style again, 
you know, sometimes it's, it, it throws the movie a little, to me a little off the Marx Brothers film because they go into that song that doesn't fit that rat a tat 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 of the dialogue. But I think it's, I think they're trying to, because the sound was new, let's get a song in here. Or, or, or the harp or the piano, you know, depending on what's going on. So it's, I think that, I think that was probably what they were going for at that time. I'm guessing. Well, it, it always, and, and, and I could be wrong because I've not, uh, not done any research on the Marx Brothers films in a serious way other than just loving them. But it always felt to me like the reason the song would get stuck in there in those films is almost to replicate the uh, vaudeville origins of a lot of the stuff that they were doing where they, there would be this constant stream of different types of entertainment being put in front of the audience as a way to kind of structure things in a way that, that had an ebb and flow. And like I say, I could be completely wrong. But that's always been my sense of it. And it never bothers me in a Marx Brothers film because it's just madcap insanity. So, I, you know, what, whatever the next thing is, I, I know there's a, I know there's a, a funny uh, lunatic scene next, you know, coming, coming up pretty soon. So I'm not worried about it. You no, know, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm a huge fan of them. But it, I guess you could say it's almost like, like a showboat type show. Yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. You know, and musical review, musical comedy review. Charles Winninger plays Captain Hawks, and I tell you, he, he steals almost he's every amazing. scene he's in. And I love the scene where the play is interrupted by one of the people in the audience, and he goes up there and acts out what they would have saw. I mean, that is just gold. <laughs> it's a showstopper, man. It's amazing. He's so he's so funny in that sequence. It's, it's incredible. And I don't think there was a stump person. I think that was him doing all those Pratt falls, all those flip. I think that had to be him. You know, it was just because. Oh, it wasn't. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's only like two, two different edits. I think there's like two edits in the sequence. So yeah, it's just him. Yeah. And that, but the price of this scene that is just, it's, 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 I mean, he, oh, cause he saves, he saves the show. Because obviously he had that thing, and he goes up there, and he just knows how to entertain the crowd. He's got such energy, um, Captain Hawks, and he actually later on helps Magnolia out when she's trying to establish her career in Chicago, and by sheer mm -hmm. happenstance happens to be there and gets her out of um, the shell because the crowd's not being responsive, and gets her and helps get her through, just like the proud father he is, and and that kind of stuff, and it's just. You just you just love his character. He just cares about everybody on his on his boat, except except for Pete, because you know Pete's kind of despicable. But he it, it, he seems to be totally just whatever keeps the thing going, everybody happy and that kind of stuff. His wife is a different is 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 an odd duck, but it, it's interesting how yeah. they must have ended up together. You want to talk about the wife? <laughs> well, the what I love what I love is that it's almost a yin yang kind of thing where the opposites. I wonder if it's if it's an opposite to track kind of situation, or if she was different in her younger years and it was motherhood and, and the life of being on this showboat to to, to 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 make a living that turned her into kind of the slightly sour lady that she is. But what I love is that the performance given. I mean, it's it's the the actress's name is uh, um, Helen Helen, uh, Helen Wesley. Yes, and she's amazing. She's really good, and she's one of those actresses who can can cast a withering glance at her at, at anyone, and you can feel the pain that those people must be experiencing because she has absolute disdain for people at times, 
And the thing is, I think that it's beautiful to watch the interaction between the two, the, between that married couple, because the love is still there. There's never a sense that these two people don't love each other, but both of them, oh, it's, it's like in any marriage. Over time, those those things that that uh, anger you or irritate you about the, about your partner, they become that thing that each of you can can whip out and use as a weapon. You can reference it instantaneously, and the other knows that there's just volumes being spoken without there being volumes being spoken out loud. And it's it's really great performances. It's one of those things that actors actors and actresses can pull off sometimes where there's this background life that you can see in the way they interact with each other. It's it's what good actors can do, and it's really heavily in evidence here in Showboat between those two characters. It's kind of amazing. And the fact that we get to watch them over the course of several decades is also great because you see them and uh, you see them in good times and bad, and that that relationship is still really strong the whole time. And you think, wow, man, we see some relationships break up here and there as the story goes along. It's like, not that one, though. Not that one. What I also find interesting, and you and I were talking about this a little bit prior to recording, James Whale was a merciless editor of his own work. He believes... Yes, he was in ebb and flow. And I'm, I'm also a big person about ebb and flow. I like when a movie has a good ebb and a flow and there were things that he filmed that yes, I wish would still survive. It could be like a deleted scene that we could see on a Blu-ray, like from criterion or whatever that he edited out because he, because his theory was just keep the thing moving. And this movie does move. I mean, it, 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 it does not yeah. really, it, it doesn't, he kept it under two hours. I think it's like an hour and 53 minutes or something like that. So it's just under two hours. And unlike, yeah, I was going to, I was going to say, don't, don't let the nearly two hour running time fool you. This thing moves. Yeah. Well, compared to movies nowadays that seem to get longer and longer. And I keep thinking that some of these movies that come out, if you would edit 15, 20 minutes out, you'd have the pacing down. Perfect. And there's other people like, Oh, I want more and more, but be careful what you ask for. Cause if you get too much, then yeah. you're, then you're like, Oh, this is boring. So I'd, I'd rather always be wanting more and be very happy mm-hmm. with the product I'm giving than to be given too much and be wishing I didn't get the more. And I think James Whale was a master at editing the movie. I think more and more, and this is almost a side, I'll just, I'll make this as a side comment. It seems more and more people these days feel that, that, that if we don't give, if, if we don't make the movie like, two hours or two and a half hours long, the audience is going to feel like they were cheated. And maybe, maybe to some minds that's true because, you know, now ticket prices are, are a good deal more than they really should be, to be honest. And so if you're going out and spending that kind of, that kind of money, you want to make, make sure people feel like they got their money's worth. But at the same time, not every story needs to be two and a half hours long folks. (laughs) And it's one of those things where when I, you know, I can see the running time on a movie that, that you're thinking about going to see and almost immediately says, Oh, that means that thing's about 45 minutes too long, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I, I agree. And I, I, like I just said, I, I'd rather things keep moving along. My thing is that the, the, the movie tells the story and the mm-hmm. story's being told. Well, it don't matter the length, you know, if you're enjoying what you're seeing. So if, so if, if the movie's supposed to be two and a half hours long and that's the way it has to, you know, it's paced and everything's set up, 
and you're enjoying the experience, it's a quick two and a half hours. Where I know you and I have probably both sat through movies that are a little over an hour long, and we just can't wait for it to get. Is, is it over yet? Because it's just <laughs> not that great. <laughs> in, in some cases, this is true. And and that's what I mean. The story should fit because there's there's been some movies that are an hour and twenty minutes that really should have been forty minutes. They should have been a short, but they tried to stretch that puppy out, and you can feel and see the stretch. It's like oh. We need to see more cars mm-hmm. driving from spot to spot just because you're just trying to pad the runtime to get to an hour and five minutes or whatever, you know, to get I'll, to feature. I'll, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. It was the, uh, it was either the second or the third, probably the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie where the entire first like half hour is this big, long thing. And then as the movie continues, you realize, oh, that entire first, first sequence doesn't even need to be in this movie. I mean, it just, it, it had absolutely no effect. There's no reason for that to be in this film. And it's one of those things where it's like, you, you talk about these, these movies, these, these giant blockbusters that stretch to two and a half hours in length or even longer sometimes. And when you can, sitting in the theater while the movie's playing in front of you, realize, oh, there was a whole section of this movie that just didn't need to be here. Somebody has made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, so somebody's made an error there, either, and who knows who was at fault, but... It's just like, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think you and I are in perfect agreement on that. And again, this is going to vary from person to person. You know, everybody's tastes are oh, different. Of course, of course. But for me, and I think for you, we find this edited, I think, exactly the way it should be. But like, oh, I it's think, beautiful. It, it, it cuts together wonderfully, yeah. I think we both agree. We wish those, those deleted scenes were somehow, like, available, like... And that's what movies can do when they come out. Like, if they edit out certain things, but they still want the scene to be seen, put it as a bonus feature, deleted scene. You can see it. And, um, you yeah. know, and that way you can be like, Oh, I can see that that added some to the story, but I can see why most of the time I'm able to see why it was edited for pacing and time. You know, I can like, I can see why that was taken out. It's nice to see this way, but I can see it would have slowed the movie down or maybe caused it to stop almost. True. Very true. But, but it's, you'd still like the option to see it at least, you know, yes. just to, just to see the, the effort and the work, if nothing else, you know? Oh yes. Cause I know, uh, you and I both read how he had originally shot the ending of the thing was going to be different than what, it, what we ended up getting. And I really wish yeah. I could see that vision. You know, we, again, it doesn't have to be in the movie. I just wish it, it was available somehow. But again, this, this movie was 85 years ago. And it, if, you're, if you're able to find deleted <laughs> footage, that's, that's, that's just yeah. like winning the lottery. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's not going to happen, sad to say. <laughs> but we, it would be nice. Oh, God, it would be nice. Now, we've talked a lot about the music, but we've never mentioned the names Oscar Hamilton, Hammerstein II, and Jerome Kern, who did the music and the lyrics for all mm-hmm. the songs. And they actually made songs special for the movie that were not, that were not oh, in know. the production. That was a surprise, I have to admit. Uh, when I learned that, uh, well, when I learned that Gallivanting Around, was done for that was was written specifically to film. I was a bit shocked. Uh, well, first of all, let's if we're if we're going to talk about a movie that talks about this particular subject, there are of course touchy things. We we've, we've talked about uh, mm-hmm. use use of the n word in the song uh, Old which, Man River and how which that's changed they, over years. But yeah, well, no, actually, they didn't put it in this production. But thankfully, it was it's, done not, it's not in this film. Yeah. It's just the, the way the song changed over time. On stage, it was there, uh, but this. Uh, this, the fact that Gallivanting Around represents another 
really questionable and often touchy subject as far as the depictions of, uh, of racial stereotypes on screen. The fact that it's a, 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 a near perfect example of the the thing we're talking about, which would be blackface, mm-hmm. which has the incredibly talented Irene Dunn performing an absolutely fantastic song in blackface. It's um, it's uncomfortable, man. <laughs> I have to admit, it took it took me it took me some thinking to figure this one out. To to be quite straight, because I'm 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 I'm, I'm always very touchy about people people talking. It, it's a, it's a form of punching down. If you're if you're going to be insulting people, then you're go, you're not. I'm not going to be on your side. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, not, I'm if you're going to be uh, denigrating people. I'm not your friend. It's not going to happen. So it's just not that. So the blackface number is wow. It's it's a little it's it's a little it's a, it's, a, it's something you've got to come to terms with. And I have to admit, the movie kind of makes it pretty easy to do. Um, first of all, the song is fantastic, but also the character who's in blackface that, that's being played by Irene Dunn. She has absolutely zero malice for anyone around her and certainly not for any of the black people in her life or the black characters in this film. And so it becomes easier to accept, even though it's a little cringy, I think you'll admit. Oh, I I do. And I know you and I both saw it. You you are warned that the blackface scene is coming up because they, they cut to her and then letting her know that her scene's coming up and you can see her just starting to put, the makeup on and I'm like, Oh, we're yep. going to a blackface number. And yep. this is this, this all, this all to be interesting. And, um, you know, so, so you're already, you're like, oh, let's see where this goes. And I think you and I are probably both back on our heels. You're like, you know, not, you're oh, hoping yeah, for the best. Was, my jaw was hanging up. Yeah. But you're hoping for the best and you're just like, let's, let's see what happens here. And, one of the things I'm so happy about the Criterion Edition is one of the commentaries is with a professor of cinema and African-American studies. Yes. And she talks about the black, um, the race in this movie, in the blackface. And I, I love the way she put it. I, 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 you were summarizing before we started. I'll let you summarize it. But she put it in such a way that made it, I think, made me feel better. I think it made you feel better. Well, you, you have to take it for what it was, and you have to put it in context, not just of the, not not, not just of what you're watching on screen in 2021 on Blu-ray, but in what it was. The, the, the there's no way around it. The, the 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 film's take on racism could be could kind of be thought of as a little confusing at times because it does combine some things that are kind of stereotypical stereotypical silliness around the portrayals of some of the facial expressions of some of the background players, not the main actors that that's never true. They're, they're treated with dignity throughout, but there's no way to get around that. A blackface performance is inherently uh, problematic. It's all, it becomes a question of whether it's being done in an insulting manner. If the point, if the point of the scene is, uh, to lift up rather than push down. 
and I think that the uh, the, the conversation that uh, that particular historian has about this film is incredibly edifying. In that she points out that yes, it could be either one, but what she the the the, the presentation in Showboat is of the type that it's yeah natural to feel in 21st century America a little worried about your enjoyment of it, but the the character and its presentation this is not an in, this is not meant as an insult, and you can take it you know it's it's, it's always that phrase of of being aware of the time period in which something was made and the attitudes at the time, and especially the attitude that the piece was attempting to foster within its audience. And the point of the scene is not to create any kind of racial animus. It is quite the opposite. It is the the reason the song is in the film is to demonstrate clearly how tied to the black musical experience that this white character's life and career really is, how her success is tied to her ties to her upbringing with Southern black people. And the, 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 the scene in the movie is there for that reason. And that is, there are other reasons why it's in the film as well, but that's the primary reason. And I think that that's an exceptional thing because it, once again, you can zoom out and realize that's true of every scene in the movie. There isn't a wasted moment. And it goes back to your comment, Steve, about the whole idea of Will's editing and his ruthlessness. There's nothing in the film that doesn't advance the story. And this scene does that same thing. And most scenes in the movie advance more than just one element within it. And the blackface scene does that as well. Cringy as hell for anybody who's sitting there and feeling terrible about what that could represent. Oh, of course, man. Oh, it's it's one thing you got to set your teeth and kind of write it out and wonder where it's going to go. But I have to say, the intent and the presentation are actually positives in the net. And so I and I end up agreeing with that that film story. And there's there's a the 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 it, it is not the terrible thing that it could so easily have become. Oh, I agree, and it it's um. And one of the things with James Whale, just to give people also an idea, they added another song. I can't remember the title of it right now, but he added scenes for Joe Rob- um, for Paul Robinson and um, Hattie McDaniel to do because he wanted to showcase ah, them yes. even more. So he's putting work out there. Like it, 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 a lot of productions this time of day would not would never do that, but here James mm-hmm. Whale is adding scenes, adding a musical number. 40s too. Just for Joe and Queenie. Just for Joe and Queenie. And it's, first of all, when I discovered that that song wasn't in the original play, that it was done for the film, I was shocked because it's called uh, I Still uh, I Still Suits Me. And it's a comic duet between the married couple and Joe and Queenie. It's so good. It's such a great song. And again, it, it shows how much, again, like I told earlier, how much that they're a loving couple. I mean, you have two, these two great loving couples on the boat and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and it just shows how to, that are different from each other, but the couples get along and there's going to be, you can just hear in the songs and in the other one you can hear in the dialogue, there's going to be trials, there's going to be tribulations, but they, yet they still love each other. And it's just, mm-hmm. 
And it's, and that's just such a timeless sentiment, you know, because every relationship is going to have trials. It's how you deal with it and handle it. That, that, that shows whether or not you have that true loving relationship. And the, the joy in the, in those characters, they're the other married couple in the movie where the, a big part of the relationship is that they pick at each other, that they, that they pick at the things that bother them about the other person, but you're never in any doubt how much they love each other. It's, 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 it's wonderfully played. And, um, I've, I've, I've actually run out of things that, that I want to talk about this movie because I think we talked so much about it <laughs> I mean, that are good. I mean, we brought up really the one negative already that, that, that the only yeah. negative I have for it. And that is um, the, the blackface um, scene and, you know, and how that relate, how that fits into the movie. And again, that, that would have been taking place in like 1880s, maybe early 1890s Mississippi. So it's, you know, if you put it in time and place, as the historian and the African-American studies professor was talking about, you know, if you put it yeah. all in context, and she even said, yes, this would have been something that um, white people would have saw, but black people at that time still would have found off-putting. But it is, I think, one of the things that's for me, it's good to show or still see is, yes, you and I had that reaction of like, I don't really like this. And I think that just shows yeah. how much times have changed for us, for a lot of people in that hundred years, you know, from when that mm -hmm. hundred plus years from that, when, you know, 1890, like 130 year difference. And I think that that's one of the good things to see that things are changing in some ways in a, in a positive manner, you know, in other ways, things are still having to change. And I, I think that's one thing that we could, I think everybody finds pretty much universally there's always exceptions, but there's universally unacceptable is, is blackface. Yeah, this is true. This is true. But if you don't have productions like this where people can still see it, I think then the youth, the people in the future won't understand the context. And I think that's, what's important about this movie where it touches on race so well at that time frame. where you look at as 1936, where you look at is from the 1880s to 1920s, Mississippi, Chicago, it, it does time capsule that stuff so people can see what things were like then and where they are now and i think and, and i think that's what's necessary about this i think this stuff the fact that this stuff exists and that this is folded within such a classic piece of cinema in the first place you have a classic a classic stage play a classic musical a classic uh i mean we, we forgot to talk about the fact that it's adapted from a novel in the first place oh, yes. that's that's neither here nor there but here's the here's the thing Without those examples along the way showing us how attitudes have changed over time, you don't. You, how do you get a sense of how we rethought ourselves, how we rethought our attitudes towards so many different subjects? If we're not able to stare, you know, at the good, the bad, and the ugly, and decide which is which, uh, and decide the changes that we want to make, and I think that the fact that something that makes our stomachs clench up in such a joyous piece of emotionally heartfelt work like this, that that still exists there. That shows us the difference between 1936 and now. That was not considered uh, what it is considered today. There's 85 years between now and then, and the attitudes that have changed between now and then uh, stand in stark contrast and allow us to see, I won't call it, uh, I won't see it, I won't, I, won't, I won't call it progress. Because I always feel like when I say progress, 
we're, we're almost we're almost starting to feel the tug, the tug of a, of a regressive pull away from those progressive progressive movements that that help help us get to certain points that push and pull between the civil rights era and now and all the changes that that have moved us forward and have changed attitudes and made people's lives better and that pull of wanting to try to regress to something before but what i will say is that without acknowledging our history in these regards on these specific subjects then we can't see where we've gotten better how things have changed and how we can point our way toward making things better moving forward because there's always room for more improvement in those areas and the fact that not all things are going to be nearly as entertaining as something like gallivanting around uh, is a damn shame, but at least that particular history lesson, both from the time period the film's predicting, uh, or uh, the, the, the time period the film is, is uh, presenting, and also the time period in which the film was made, I think, it's, uh, I think it's educational, and it's also entertaining at the same time, and there's not a whole lot of things that you can say that about. So, yet another positive check mark on the on the roster of things that this film has going for it in my opinion oh i agree and i think um i think it's safe to say you and i both recommend this for people to see i think like the oh, only yes. the only cravat i gave earlier was just for some people to, for modern people that the songs might be um not as entertaining to you because musical styles change but otherwise everything else i think holds up perfectly you know for a modern audience to watch Oh, I agree. And if if you're a fan of musical theater, this is uh, man. How could you have missed this one? I I I I've, I've admitted that I wasn't once. So that's how I missed it. <laughs> well, I think it, it, it when uh, was it? MGM got the rights to Showboat in the '40s, then this one couldn't be shown, and then it took it for a long time before it came back out. And yeah, and so and then people have two different versions and that kind of stuff. And I waited. You know, finally the Criterion version came out, and I was like, if I'm going to get it, let me get the Criterion version because, I mean, it's a name brand where, you know, you're almost always getting the best quality um, edition that you can at that time. And it was – and so far I haven't gone through all the bonus features. I don't think you have either, but just a couple of bonus features that I have gone through, make again, just shows you why Criterion is a nice thing to get if if, if you haven't gotten it yet. I gotta say that there's the, 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 the there's some uh, rough footage of uh, the 1929 version uh, that's included as a as an extra on this disc. That is some interesting stuff to see because it's just it was just something that was thrown up so they could get some stuff on film to kind of as a proof of concept for how to do it. And uh, it's it's interesting. Like I say, the the more the more the merrier, the more information possible about this stuff. And that Criterion disc is well worth your money. Yeah, that's correct. Well, it definitely is. And um, listeners, if you want to get more with Rod and his movie opinions, The Bloody Pit, you know, you should add it to your podcast listening pleasures. I mean, there as you had an episode I know I listened to not that um, recently. Of course, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be probably a few months old, 1941. <laughs> um, and, yeah. And where, where you touch the comedy. And so you, you, you don't just stay in this um, – Westerns with William Castle, 1940s. You don't just stay Italian. You don't just stay Coffin Joe. But you've added comedy and other stuff to your show. It, it, I think it pretty much it seems to go where your interest and where your co-host interests are going. Well, the that's the thing is that I have really broad interests in, in film to begin with. 
And when you add in the fact that I like to let the, the, the guests kind of choose the direction of, of the subject matter, it becomes this thing where, uh, you know, one episode will be on uh, William Castle, the next on uh, an obscure Italian horror film made in Florida in the late 1980s. And the one after that on a, on a, uh, a Harold Lloyd silent comedy from the 1920s. It's, uh, believe me, uh, I, I don't, I don't, uh, recommend anyone live inside my own, my, live inside my brain. It's difficult for me to be there anyway, but, uh, the bloody pit, uh, back and forth. You never know what the next episode will be about. That's for sure. But, uh, let's just say that we bring a level of enthusiasm to, uh, to each discussion and we try to, we try to present something to you each time out that, uh, you didn't know when you started. And I will warn listeners, the, old, the only thing I could say to warn people about, they do have the explicit label on their thing. So they do get into oh, some yes, language. Indeed. So just, just to warn people, you know, like they, Rod made it for this whole episode clean. <laughs> <laughs> There's been no editing done. I, I can work. I can work clean people. It is true. But he usually works in the blue and when he, when he does his <laughs> reviews. <laughs> uh, yep. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, but Rod, thank you for joining us on this episode to talk about the last, in my opinion, the last masterpiece that James Whale did in our James Whale yeah. retrospective. Yeah. And um, listeners, remember to listen to the next episode where we'll you're either be doing a movie review, decided by the roll of a die, or an interview. And we're going to let Old Man River take us out. And I really recommend listen to the lyrics. And if you could and really seek out the, the YouTube part of it, if, or the movie per, proper to see exactly the imagery they're showing with it. it it's, it's definitely something mm. to see. And if Rod, if you can hold on when we're done, the, uh, the, the song, you and I will do our proper goodbyes. Sure. Ask Miss Julie what she thinks. Last old river, what he thinks. He knows all about them boys. He knows all about everything. There's an old man called the Mississippi That's the old man that I'd like to be What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? Old man river, that old man river He must know something but don't say
Darkies awake on the Mississippi. Darkies awake while the white folks play. Pulling those boats from the dawn till sunset. Getting no rest till the judgment day. Don't know down and don't look down. You don't dance day. The white horse crown in your knees and on your Mississippi, let me go away from the white man boss. Show me that stream called the River Jaws. 